Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. And welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. My name is Sophia Chandrasekhar. And on today's episode, our two speakers, Billy Kettleson and Stephanie Noblet, will be talking about legislative issues regarding the laboratory. This episode was produced by Billy Kettleson and the Leadership Academy class of 2020. This is our first CE-approved podcast episode, so to obtain CE credit for this episode, please go to ascls.org slash off the bench and follow the instructions for further information. All right, Billy, take it away. Today, our speaker with us is Stephanie Nablet, um, and she will be discussing kind of legislative issues and the role that the laboratory and laboratory sciences can play in them to make sure that we get across what we need to. Um, my name is Billy Kettleson, and I will be your host today. I am the Leadership Academy class of 2020, and my day job is a laboratory manager. So welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for joining me today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, particularly what drove your passion for laboratory legislation? Sure. So first, I want to just say thank you to you, Billy, and also thank you to the Leadership Academy um, Class of 2020 for allowing me and inviting me onto this podcast. I'm always excited to share my background and my story and um, help to educate and be help other members become more familiar with um, legislative issues that are facing the laboratory. So I am a medical laboratory scientist myself. I graduated with my MLS degree in 2014 from the University of the Sciences uh, here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I worked for about two and a half years after I graduated in the toxicology lab at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, after that, I decided to go on to law school. Um, I went to law school at Drexel University's uh, Thomas R. Klein School of Law, again in Philadelphia, my hometown, um, where I studied health law. And I graduated last May, and now I'm working for a small nonprofit organization that does advocacy and policy work with um, substance use issues, public health issues, and the intersection between those and criminal justice. So for me, it's been really interesting to kind of come from that clinical toxicology perspective and seeing kind of um, the opioid epidemic and, you know, the substance use crisis play out on the clinical level and now seeing it from that 3,000 foot view with the policy level. Um, you know, it's what's actually going on in state and federal legislatures and how they're approaching the epidemic. But um, as, you know, a lot of you are probably wondering, how did I go from working the bench in a laboratory, wearing my scrubs and my lab coat every day to going to law school? Um, you know, that's a big 180. And a lot of that uh, my reasoning and um, the kind of the passion that was lit inside of me came from being a member of ASCLS, specifically being a member of the Government Affairs Committee, which we shorten um, and call the GAC. 
So the GAC is on the national level of ASCLS, and they are one of the standing committees of the organization that deals with um, the legislative and regulatory issues that face the laboratory profession and um, personnel. So I became part of that committee um, right after I had graduated and started working with my MLS. And through that committee, I became exposed to all of these issues that were playing out on the federal level related to the laboratory. And you could see then when I was going into work every day, how some of these issues were ultimately trickling down and affecting what I was doing on the bench each day and how they affected my ability to serve my patients. And I noticed that sometimes a lot of bills or regulations that the government put out may have had a good intention um, at the start, but when they were ultimately put in place, they didn't have the effect that they were going for. In some cases, that effect ultimately turned out to be negative. And I realized that a lot of that was due to the people writing and working on these bills and regulations, not having a deep understanding of the laboratory, um, especially not what goes on day to day, um, and were you know asking them and expecting them to put forth legislation that will work perfectly once it goes into place. But if you don't understand the inner workings of the laboratory, it's really difficult to get that right. So I realized that we need more people kind of with this clinical background uh, that I had um, being able to understand these laws and regulations and being the people at the table from where, at, um, where these regulations and legislation are coming from. And that was what kind of inspired me to um, walk outside of the laboratory, so to speak, and kind of enter this policy realm. And it's definitely been very interesting um, kind of seeing both. And now I like to think of myself as kind of a, a translator between the clinical and the policy slash legal world. Um, and I'm always happy to use my knowledge to kind of um, explain and help others understand as well. Wow, that sounds, that's really fascinating. Um, it's amazing. I've always found something amazing about laboratory professions is that you can go into a completely different field. You went into law. You moved into a different different field outside the laboratory, but yet you still can have such an impact within the laboratory on all the outside factors that are affecting us. And that's why I think this podcast actually will be really helpful because I don't think a lot of especially kind of your everyday bench techs. And I'm a manager and I don't even have the, a strong knowledge background on some of this legislation that is out there. So this is going to be, I think, a lot of fun. And I think it's going to be a great learning opportunity for a lot of our members and non-members alike in ESCLS. Um, real quick, so based on what you were saying, um, have you found that, and I know we're going to talk about the current legislation that is out there that the laboratory professionals in ESCLS are supporting, but have you found with some of the missteps in the past, with the legislation we have presented or the work we have done, we've been able to correct some of those missteps? Some of them we have been able to correct. Um, and some of them, like with PAMA, which we're going to talk about later, we're still working on kind of correcting um, 
the mistakes or missteps, as you said, um, that was associated with that legislation. And I think um, one of the things that's really difficult for laboratorians to understand when it comes to policy is that policy and the government, the whole legislative and regulatory process does not work like the laboratory works. And it's very difficult for us to kind of get out of that mind because we are programmed to, when something is wrong, to investigate it and fix it and make sure we have protocols in place that it doesn't happen again. And we're all working on very strict timelines and we have, um, you know, timetables and um, we have to get things done within a certain amount of time, but the government does not work that way. There is no um, stat mode for the government necessarily. Um, so those processes to fix things take quite a long time. And sometimes, you know, you go through a whole process to get legislation or regulation passed. And then there's a whole nother process to undo those things. So there's not just a button that says, okay, we can, you know, this was no good. We're just going to toss it out. We have to go through that process. And that process is very laborious and intensive and takes a while. And I think that's why um, a lot of laboratorians get frustrated when it comes to policy and um, legislation and government affairs, because it doesn't work the same way as the laboratory. And there's also never um, a direct answer to anything. Um, we were taught in law school that, you know, the best answer that you can ever give when it comes to a legal or a policy question is, it depends. And saying something like, it depends, as in your full answer to a question to a scientist or a laboratorian and specifically, is not going to be the answer that they want to hear. We want to hear something direct. We want to hear, you know, this number of days, this number of hours, it's going to be fixed. We need to do A, B, and C followed by X, Y, Z in order to get something fixed. And that doesn't necessarily play out when it comes to government work. So I understand why it can be very frustrating because it's frustrating to me too sometimes. Um, and I... I encourage people to stay with it because I know that, you know, the frustration that comes with it turns a lot of people off. Um, but if we can just hang in there, um, I think we could really start to see uh, a bigger collective movement from our profession when it comes to some of these issues. Wow, that really explains a lot. I was going to say, as soon as you said, it depends, my, I kind of got a shiver down my spine. Because <laughs> you're like, even just saying that as like part of a question, it depends. It's kind of like, oh, uh, no, you're completely right. As a laboratorian, that is, that's like two really bad words <laughs> for <laughs> us when it comes to timeframes and getting stuff done. So, no, I, wow. No, that's great. Thank you for that kind of better understanding of the process, because Again, I didn't know it, so I'm sure our listeners will love to hear some of that. So let's jump into those the two legislative issues, the two main ones from the laboratory perspective. So you kind of mentioned we're going to talk about PAMA and then the workforce shortage. So where would you like to start? Let's start with PAMA. Yeah, let's start with PAMA. Perfect. So tell us about PAMA. 
All right. So PAMA has been an issue that's been around for uh, a few years now. And like I was saying, it's something that's still around and still affecting the laboratory and something that ASCLETS and other laboratory um, groups are still um, putting forth effort to kind of uh, fix or um, work back some of the issues from that bill. So PAMA is an acronym for the name of the act, which is the Protecting Access to Medicare Act, or we just lovingly refer it to it as PAMA. Uh, but PAMA is actually a large bill itself, now law. And while it's a large bill, um, we as the laboratory community are only concerned with one small part of it, which is Section 216. So what Section 216 did or does is it modernized the clinical laboratory fee schedule. So to make a long, complex story a little bit shorter, the clinical laboratory fee schedule was something, uh, it's how laboratories get paid through Medicare. Um, so the fee schedule that we had was originally established in 1984, and um, basically it determined the price that laboratories would get reimbursed for each test. So how, the how much money per test would the laboratory get paid for by Medicare? And the clinical laboratory fee schedule it was established in 1984, but it hadn't been updated since then. So the rates over the years had been adjusted for inflation, but CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the government agency that has jurisdiction over um, the clinical laboratory fee schedule, CMS never updated the base rates. So what this means is that certain tests, like your basic chemistry tests, like a BMP or cholesterol, lipids, things like that, those tests were actually being paid for um, at a higher rate than what they should have been. So back in the 80s, it cost more to perform those basic clinical chemistry tests because we didn't have the technology that we do now. Now we can perform those tests for cheaper, but we were being reimbursed for the rates that were higher. Uh, so we were essentially making more money than we should on those specific tests and the government didn't like that. So they wanted to have the rates then reflect um, the current testing methods, those lower rates. But on the flip side of that, in the 1980s, we didn't have as many tests as we do now. So we didn't really have molecular testing back then. So as molecular testing was being reintroduced, the government essentially made up a price per test for those tests. Um, and in addition to lowering the costs associated with those basic tests, the government wanted to make sure that we were actually getting paid the proper amount of what it costs to be to perform those high complexity molecular and other newer tests. So the government's idea was to replace the original fee schedule with a new fee schedule that would be market-based. 
and that the way that they were going to do this was they were going to collect data from a variety of laboratories across the country um, for what they got paid by private insurers for each test. So what did you get paid by Blue Cross Blue Shield for your um, CBC and so on and so forth. Um, the labs would collect this information, uh, report it to the government, and then the government would establish the new fee schedule by determining the weighted median of the data collected. Now, how the law was, or the regulation then, Pamela, was written was that only certain laboratories were allowed to report. Not every laboratory across the country had the, uh, was allowed to. You had to fit within a certain criteria. Now, the criteria that they set, um, they set it in a way that it made it very difficult for your typical hospital laboratory to be allowed to report. So this means when you cut off all of those general hospital laboratories from reporting, you're kind of just left with the big box commercial labs. So your Quest and your LabCorp. So the thing to remember about these commercial laboratories is that they do a lot more testing than your everyday um, average hospital laboratory. And because of that, they are able to perform testing in bulk. So they're performing the same testing on a larger scale um, for cheaper. So if you were to think about like, for example, Walmart is able to sell its products usually on a cheaper um, basis than your neighborhood mom and pop store. And it's kind of that similar idea here. So when the government got laboratory uh, data, um, the majority of which was from those big box laboratories, it kind of skewed the data. So in the end, after the data was reported, the government had estimated that about 5% of laboratories would end up reporting data. However, when the reporting period ended and they actually tallied up all of the labs that reported, only 0.7% of labs ended up reporting. And this worked out to be a little less than 2,000 labs. The majority of those labs were the big box independent laboratories, and only 21 of those labs were your traditional hospital laboratories. So about 90% of this data that they can't came from independent laboratories. And like I said, because they perform things on a much cheaper basis, it extremely skewed the data. So originally, before this went through, government the government uh, estimated that the reduction in Medicare payments for laboratory reimbursement, the cuts would be around $100 million in the first year. However, once these cuts were um, calculated and put into place, the actual expected um, reduction in Medicare payments for laboratories was more than $600 million just during 2018 alone. 
So that is a huge difference. And that because is because of the um, strict requirements on which laboratories were allowed to report. So as you can imagine, with that large um, cut to laboratory, that there are a lot of concerns to that. Because laboratories, they, um, you know, there's not a lot of money coming in from labs. We run on a small, relatively small profit margin. So there was a lot of concerns once this came out, especially for labs in rural areas and also labs that have um, a high um, patient population of nursing home patients because, you know, Medicaid, Medicare, um, you know, is the older um, population. So anybody that was serving nursing homes was really going to be hit hard with these cuts. So as we're reducing the amount that the laboratory is getting paid, we're, you know, going to be dealing with issues of labs not being able to in, um, invest in new instrumentation. They're going to have to cut back their testing menus, possibly. Um, and that could um, result in tests having to be sent out. And when that happens, that extends turnaround time. It delays patient care. Um, and it has an effect on how long people have to stay in the hospital. And it also, you know, can affect other things like how much people are able to get paid or if you're able to replace that employee that retires or leaves. Um, so this was a really big concern for the laboratory community, um, that labs were going to be reduced much less than what we originally expected. Yeah, that uh, hits, I think, all areas of the lab pretty hard. I did a quick Google search as our best friend for some of this data when you were doing that, and I found that across the country, we have over 200,000 different laboratories. So if you're talking about such a small percentage that actually got data into this survey, there is a huge gap between the rest of the country and those big box labs like Quest. Um, wow. that's And the idea of increasing a patient's stay or anything like that as laboratorians, I know that's the one thing we're against. We're here for patient safety and we want to get them the quickest results as possible so they can either continue treatment or get what they need. And that would probably be really detrimental over the next few years for the people who come into the profession to help patients and then they can't because obviously we're not getting reimbursed at the same rate as we were. That's very fascinating. Yes, that's exactly right. It's a huge issue. And I want to make clear that these cuts were not a one-time thing. This is something that's going to continue to happen. So actually, every few years, laboratories are going to be required. Those that fit into the definition of who is allowed to report um, are going to be re-required to submit data, and then the government will recalculate those reimbursement rates. So if you think about it, we're going to be cutting on top of cuts, on top of cuts, on top of cuts. So this is not just an issue of, you know, this uh, few years. This is something that's going to go on and affect the laboratory for a while. And that's why, you know, this has been such a big concern of ASCLS and the laboratory community in general, because there is a big concern on 
laboratories not being able to survive those cuts. And as you know, we know as laboratorians that a hospital can't really survive without a laboratory. And we know, um, especially now, you know, dealing with COVID-19 and other um, medical issues that it's important that, you know, communities have hospitals and uh, laboratories available to them. So um, we're well aware as a society um, that, you know, something needs to be done about HAMA. So actually earlier this year, there was a bill that ASCLS and some other laboratory um, groups had been working with Congress on, and it's called the Laboratory Access for Beneficiaries Act, which has been appropriately shortened to the Lab Act. Um, and this act actually was just passed earlier this year, so it is now law. And what the law does is it provides a one-year delay of HEMA dating reporting. So it allows those hospitals that are allowed to report, it gives them a one-year delay so that they can better work on um, creating systems where they're, they are better able to create this uh, data set and process it. And it also required a study by the National Academy of Medicine to assess on how to improve PAMA. So what could be done to kind of lessen the effect on the laboratory, but also being able to save the government a little bit of money, um, which was their ultimate goal with this. Um, so that has passed and uh, the one-year delay, reporting delay is in effect, but it's important to know that there was not a delay in um, the cuts, so the cuts are still ongoing. They're just a delay in reporting. Um, but while this was not an ultimate fix for HAMA, it is, um, in a sense, a start uh, or a moving in the right direction to kind of ultimately going through the process of um, getting what we want to be done. Um, and we may come to the end of that one-year delay and realize that that wasn't enough and still more needs to be done. And at that point, we can go back to Congress and ask them to extend it um, or try and come work with us to, to um, come up with some other solution. Um, but this has kind of been um, a small movement in the right direction, but we still have a lot more work to do when it comes to PAMA. So it's still something that ASCLS is keeping an eye on, that we're still working with our legislative consultant on and still um, trying to get across to Capitol Hill kind of the negative effects that PAMA has on laboratories um, and ultimately, you know, patients across the country. So would it be safe to say that without the Lab Act being implemented earlier this year, that the effects of PAMA would probably be worse than they are currently? Or just, is that more for a future state? Um, well, because the cuts are still happening, the Lab Act did not stop the cuts. We're still dealing with the effects of PAMA. Um, but the Lab Act gives us the time we need to kind of dive deeper into PAMA and look for um, 
better and more long-term solutions to fixing this problem. So in your opinion, as an employee in the legal field and having really dug deep into these legislative issues, after these reviews, do you feel like these first cuts of PAMA will ever be reversed? I don't think the cuts will ever be reversed. I I do believe that um, we will get to a point where the cuts are more manageable, but that will take time. That goes back to what I was saying at the beginning that, you know, you have to go through that process and, you know, that's where the real struggle lies. Um, but that's why we need to keep at it and keep being adamant and raising our voice about this issue. Um, you know, those hospitals that are really deeply affected and end up closing, um, you know, there's not going to be likely anything that can reverse that from happening. Um, but we need to make sure that we protect all the hospitals and labs that we have now so that it, going forward in the future, that we don't end up at a point where people are unable to access care because there is, you know, no hospital or, or laboratory around. Um, so it really comes down to just, um, you know, digging in deep, going through that process um, and not forgetting that this is an issue, something that we need to just keep um, working on and being vocal about. And I think that's a great point. And I mean, key to some of this is we have to keep being aware of it. We can't just kind of tuck it away because, as you said, this takes time. And I think this podcast and some of this other information will help. Getting more information about the GAC out from ASCLS will help keep it in the forefront, I think, of everybody's mind. Because when you don't talk about things all the time, you tend to forget that it's happening. Things are happening in the background. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for that thorough review of PAMA. Um, I know I learned a lot, so I hope our listeners did as well. Um, the second legislative issue that we wanted to talk about was the workforce shortage. Would you like to give us an um, overview of that? Sure. So the workforce issue is something that we as laboratorians have known and have been dealing with for, for what seemed like forever, a very long time. It's something that everybody at all levels, whether you're a student doing your rotations whether you're a manager, whether you're just working the bench, um, it's something that all of us are very aware of. And um, I want to point out that the workforce shortage issue, um, it is affected by, you know, the whole issue of PAMA. And PAMA is kind of, uh, with those cuts, kind of exaggerating the workforce shortage because if we're getting paid, uh, reimbursed less, we're not going to be able to hire the appropriate staff um, in some cases or replace people when they leave or retire. Um, so it's important to consider, you know, how those two issues are connected in that way. But um, outside of PAMA, there are, um, and, you know, just how we're being reimbursed, there's kind of external factors that are also affecting the workforce shortage. So, um, one, our workforce, um, the laboratory workforce, uh, tends to be um, older on average than the other uh, workforces or other professions. 
So we're actually um, at a spot right now where we're experiencing and are going to experiencing a large wave of retirements over the next few years. Um, and that's great. We're happy that you know our hardworking laboratorians are going to be able to enter and enjoy their retirement. But the issue lies is that we're losing these um, highly trained, qualified techs, and we don't have um, the workers to replace them. Um, so when they leave, we might not have anybody to take their spot. And that's going to result, you know, in people going to have to be working longer shifts, extra shifts, overtime. Um, and that comes with a whole set of issues. You know, we don't want to have um, our laboratory workers overworked or stressed out to the point where they're unable to do, to do their job properly. Now, part of the reason that we're not able to really fill those spots when people retire is that we're not having enough people graduate with MLS or MLT um, degrees and enter the profession. And there's a few reasons for that. So um, one of the cool things about a profession is to get, you know, your degree in either MLS or MLT, you do um, your rotations, you have a clinical aspect. And while that education is great, it does serve as a bottleneck um, for allowing people to enter into the, to the profession. So for example, I, the um, program that I did my rotations at here in Philadelphia at Pennsylvania Hospital, when I was in the program, they were limited to only accepting eight students because that's only as much as the laboratory could handle on top of all the their general responsibilities on top, you know, not even adding teaching on top of that. So think of that program only being able to put out into the workforce eight people each year. And there's a lot more people out there. And obviously there's other programs, but just those limited number of students coming out into the profession isn't enough to replace all of the people leaving. So we have that bottleneck effect that's going on. So a way to ease that would be to have more clinical sites, more educational programs. But then another issue is that people don't really know about our profession. And I know I didn't know about the profession until I was looking for colleges and had discovered the university I ended up attending had an MLS program. And if people don't know about the profession, they're not going to go to school to become a part of it. So we also need to do better on our part in making sure that people are educated our, about our profession, that they understand that this is a major and um, an educational pathway out there for them. Um, it's a really great STEM career. It's, um, you know, something that where you're almost always guaranteed to be a job. And that's something that us as ASCLS members, that's something that we can do every day, going out and educating, you know, friends and family, going to do science fairs in our cities and towns and talking at schools, uh, career fairs, things like that. Um, because we really need more people into the profession. Um, actually, the 
Bureau of Labor um, Statistics um, has projected between 2016 and 2026 that the laboratory community, um, the projected increase in the workforce is 13%. And if you compare that to just what it is in general for all workforces and all professions overall, that's only 7%. So we are in huge need of laboratory professionals. Those numbers are staggering when you think about it. It is, and I can speak from a manager standpoint, it is difficult sometimes to get positions filled because there's just, there are not the qualified people out there to fill them. So I've lived that firsthand. Um, I'm wondering if, and I was just thinking about this, I hope that COVID has given a little bit of a boost to the laboratory profession that could help us with this workforce shortage because when all the testing was done in the end, it came down to the lab. The lab was performing the testing, the lab was performing either the swabs, the, the PCR, or they were doing the antibody testing. And I know a lot of the laboratorians I know really stepped up on like social media and was like, this is what we do. Here we are. You come be a part of us. So I'm hoping that that gives us a little bit of boost in this realm, but it's still going to be an issue moving forward. Yes. And I think you make a good point about kind of COVID, um, kind of the silver lining, so to speak, of that has been um, the spotlight that has been put on the laboratory community. I mean, so much talk on social media, on the news, um, you know, just everywhere about laboratory testing that, you know, we have never really seen before. And I'm hoping now that people kind of have a better understanding of what the laboratory does and even that just the laboratory exists, um, that that will inspire some people to, um, you know, look into the profession um, and potentially enter it at some point. But like you said, we do have a long road ahead of us. Um, so what ASCLS has been doing um, to kind of promote the building or boosting of our workforce is we have actually been working with um, federal representative David Cicilline. So he is a democratic representative from Rhode Island. Um, and we have been working with him over the past few months to create a bill that would help to um, alleviate some of the problems that we're currently facing with our workforce issues. So the bill is called the Allied Health Professional Shortage Act, and that's H.R. 6302, if anybody wanted to look that up later. But the bill was actually introduced into the House of Representatives a few months ago. And what this bill would do is it would establish a program of scholarships as well as loan repayments for individuals pursuing a degree related to um, allied health fields. It would also allow um, the, it would also authorize up to $25 million um, between 2021 and 2025 to carry out these scholarship and loan repayment programs. Um, so this is something that, you know, we're very excited about. Um, just to make clear, this is for 
everyone in the allied health professions. So that includes medical laboratory professionals, but that also includes um, professions like physical therapy, respiratory therapist, um, occupational therapist as well. Um, it's very difficult to get um, congressional buy-in for a bill that just deals with the clinical laboratory profession, unfortunately. So kind of expanding it is a way to get um, more people behind the bill. Um, but, it, you know, even though it is not just for us, it's definitely a step forward and something that, you know, we could benefit from. And if this were to pass, you know, it would be great to be able to provide, you know, students um, with these scholarships as well as loan repayment options. That would be a huge benefit for them and also a huge encouragement for people to enter the field. Um, so this bill has been introduced. It has not been passed yet. Um, you know, once again, we don't know when something will pass. It's just something that we have to wait out. Um, there is a possibility that, you know, over the next few months that this bill could be, um, you know, added into one of the additional COVID bills um, as a part of the way to support the healthcare workforce during this time. But, um, you know, that's not something that we can say for certain, but I just want you know, all our members to know that that's something out there. And uh, just one of the ways that we're working on trying to um, alleviate this workforce shortage. I think that is a fantastic program for all allied health professionals. And I agree 100% that in a way we have to stick together as allied health professionals. We're kind of, we do our own thing and they do their own thing, but it does help us. We're kind of all in the same field. We're all in the same boat. We're all behind the scenes in a lot of ways. So um, I think that's fantastic. It would be nice, I know for some students, I'm sure to have that little bit of extra boost with a scholarship or loan payments, especially people doing like um, students doing a four plus one program where they have an internship or a clinical rotation after graduation where they're kind of on their own. They're no longer part of the university. So I think that would be, I would have loved that as a student. So I, I'd like to hope that other students would like that as well. well thank you very much for that um, overview on the workforce shortage. Um, this has been very enlightening and I am so glad that you were willing to come on and do this. I know I have learned a lot. Can you tell me so that we can share it along, what would be the best way for our members or just laboratory professionals to use their voice to help pass this legislation? I think it's important for all of us to remember that when it comes to the medical laboratory profession, that we are the experts. And because we have that expertise, we have a responsibility to get out there and educate others about you know, our profession and what we do and why it's so important. And um, I want to stress that, you know, you don't have to go lobby in Capitol Hill or, you know, go to law school or, you know, have a deep understanding of all these bills and regulations to really make a difference and advocate for your profession. Advocacy is sometimes a scary word for people, but I want to stress that, you know, just 
talking to your friend about what you do is also a form of advocacy. Um, you know, going to a school and doing a career day uh, presentation is also a form of advocacy. And I want everyone to think of different ways that they can be an advocate or a labvocate, as we like to call it at ASCLS, um, because we all have the ability to do that. Um, I think that the number one thing is just using your voice, whether you do that, um, you know, in person or whether that's on social media. Social media has proven to be um, a really powerful tool when it comes to advocating for our profession. I know um, myself and there's um, definitely a lot of other great ASLMS members um, that are very active on LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Facebook, that are constantly sharing facts and articles um, about the profession and are really um, educating and enlightening their networks. And that's all advocacy as well. Um, there's also other things that you can do um, if you're interested in getting involved. Um, so always being a member of ASCLS, it's important to note that our organization is only as powerful as our collective voice and our voice is determined by how big we are or how many members we have. So the larger we are as an organization, the more um, cohesive and uh, louder we are in our message, the um, louder and more powerful our voice is in Congress and um, other government agencies. And then um, there's also other things. Um, so you always have the option to write or call your congressperson. Uh, these are especially good tools if you can't make it to the legislative symposium that ASCLS holds every day in March uh, or every year in March. And um, yeah, but my advice is, you know, just get out and talk. I think that's it's something that we all have a responsibility uh, to do as um, laboratory professionals. Um, and I'm always happy, and I know ASCLS and the GAC are always happy to uh, work with people uh, or state and regional societies if they have like a specific government or uh, policy project that they want to work on. They're always welcome to reach out to us for guidance or assistance. Um, so always remember that you're not alone in this, you know, ASCLS has tons of advocacy resources available um, and, you know, we're always happy to help. Well, thank you very much for that. Did you hear that laboratorians out there? It's time for you to become a labvocate as well and share, just keep sharing. I was overwhelmed by the amount of sharing on social media with the COVID crisis, and I'm so proud of our profession and trying to get our, our name and what we do out there. Well, Stephanie, thank you so, so much for joining me today for this podcast um, and helping make people more aware of just the legislative issues that are out there and what we can do as a profession to really work with our legislators to better the future of our profession. Uh, before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to add today? 
Uh, I just want to thank you again, uh, Billy and Leadership Academy. I had a great time. I'm honored uh, to be a part of this. Um, definitely uh, always happy to talk about uh, government affairs and the issues that the laboratory is facing. Um, I hope that um, we can all, you know, get out there and be advocates for the profession and that, you know, one day we'll have that really strong voice and we'll be able to, you know, really um, proudly represent the laboratory community and profession. Um, so, yeah, thanks again for having me. We, it is our pleasure completely. So thank you for joining us. So that's it for this episode of ASCLS Off the Bench. Um, We'd love to hear from you. Check out the ASCLS Facebook page to join in the discussion. If you have any questions, please, you can post them there and we'd be happy to get back to you. I'm sure Stephanie would be happy to answer anything and get back to you guys. Um, Our next podcast will be coming soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.